0: And so this week we're looking at uh, a psalm, and next week we'll look at a psalm, and then we'll uh, we'll hear from uh, from Tim in First Samuel, and then we'll be in Zechariah. So we'll continue to go through First Samuel and the Minor Prophet Zechariah. But this morning we're in a psalm, and we're in Psalm 47 in particular. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Psalm chapter 47. There's an outline on the back of the worship guide. Take a look at that, if that's helpful for you, to keep an eye on where we're going, write anything down you think would be helpful. Psalm 47, Um, I I wonder how you'd answer the question if somebody asked you, are you a singer? There's a lot of different ways somebody, well, there's two ways somebody can answer that question, yes or no, but there's different things that you could base that on. So if somebody said, are you a singer? Now you might say no, because at least as far as I know, nobody here is a professional singer. I don't think anybody here makes their money from from singing. So you might say no, but several people here probably sang in choirs growing up in school, maybe even in college. So you could think, yeah, I'm, I'm a singer. I've, I've sung in that way before. Or, or maybe people just tell you, you have a really good voice. And so you would answer, yes, I see myself as a, a singer because of that. Or, or maybe you would you would just say no, because maybe you've done none of those things and you don't think about yourself as a, as a good singer. But, but here's something that scripture teaches us. In particular, if you answer the question, no. If somebody says to you, are you a singer? And you say no. Well, well here's what our Psalm is gonna tell us this morning. It's gonna remind us that, that if you're a Christian, if you're one of God's people, then God considers you to be a singer. That's a thing that the Lord considers you to be. He, he wants you to consider yourself to be a singer. That's, that's really kind of the upshot of our passage this morning. So hear the word of the Lord. This is Psalm 47. There the psalmist says, "'Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued people under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. he is highly exalted okay so if you're if you're in the habit of singing the songs on sunday morning singing them loudly singing them joyfully if, if if that's the way that you do it then then this passage it'll serve to confirm you in that and remind you why you should continue to sing in that way joyfully robustly loudly But but if you're in the habit of of not singing the songs on Sunday morning, or maybe singing them kind of half-heartedly, without much thought, easy to slide into that, if that's you, the Lord's going to use our our time together now to to try and persuade you to sing all the songs on Sunday and to sing them in a robust way, to sing them with a full heart, sing them with a loud voice. Now, there are three main points we're going to see. As we move through this passage, and those are listed there on the, on the back on the outline. First, we'll see that God tells you to sing to him. It's our first point. Second, he tells you for what reason you're supposed to sing to him. And finally, he tells you in what way, how you're supposed to sing to him. So, first point, God tells you to sing to him. So, in his word, he calls on you to sing. Let me read a few portions of Psalms. Psalm 911, sing praises to the Lord. Psalm 33, verse 3, sing to him a new song. Psalm 66, verse 2, sing the glory of his name. Psalm 68, verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to his name. We could literally, we could fill up 45 minutes just reading psalms not even the rest of the bible just psalms that command us to sing as believers but but it's not just the old testament where god makes it clear we should be singing colossians 3 was our congregational reading this morning this is colossians 3 verse 16 and following let the word of christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to god so part of the way that we teach and encourage and admonish one another is singing to one another on Sunday mornings or Ephesians 5, 19, really similar passage. Paul says, address one another inside the church, address one another in Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Or we think about James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Romans 15:9. "I will sing to your name." Or you probably remember the story in Acts 16, where Paul and Silas get arrested, you remember? And the angel comes, opens up the, the prison door to let them out. Okay, what were they doing before that happened? when they're locked up in jail? This is Acts 16:25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God? Or what does Jesus lead the group of disciples to do right after they take the first Lord's Supper? This is Matthew 26, 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Or you can think about 1 Corinthians 14. It makes it clear when Christians gather together, that we're singing to one another, one God commanded element of the gathering of the church is, is to sing to each other. The book of revelation, the last book in the new Testament makes it clear that not only are we supposed to sing, but it's a significant part of what will be revealed as doing for all eternity. So we heard Mark read the new Testament passage. Part of that is revelation fifteen three, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the lamb. Okay, so so what all that means is we shouldn't be surprised at all by the instruction to us in Psalm 47 that the Lord's calling us to sing. Look again at the heart of our passage, the very middle of it, verse 6 of Psalm 47. We see the repetition, which again, when you're reading the Bible and you see repetition, you're supposed to focus in on that. He, He might as well underline it or put it in italics or bold print. That's the way that they would draw somebody's attention, their audience's attention to something in a special way. They'd repeat it. Verse 6 of our psalm, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. So that's what our passage is calling you and me to do. Our passage is calling us to sing to God. Back in verse 1, clap your hands all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. Or verse 7, for God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. Okay, now the the question, and you might not have never thought about it before, but but the question is why? You know what, why does the Lord not just have us, obviously our words are important, but why doesn't he just have us recite scripture to one another or maybe write write, uh, stories to him or sort of put it down didactically where we're saying true things to the Lord? He does ask us to do that. It's the way we pray, right? Most of us pray, I don't think singing, we just speak to the Lord. Okay, so so how come he doesn't just have us operate that way, but he also has us sing to him and sing to one another? Because that's, that's not a usual thing. You know, I doubt your supervisor at work has ever said to you, okay, you, you just sort of summed up this project for me. I'd like you to sing it to me now. So take the content and, and just make a song out. This probably never happened to you. It's never happened to me. So. By the Lord's grace, I graduated from high school and college and, and then went to seminary. I never had to sing as part of, of getting, I guess I had a choir class, but, but you know when I'm standing up there getting ready to graduate, they, they don't have us sing. If you're a kid who's living at home and you're under your parents' authority, chances are your parents have never said to you, have you sung today? You know The way that they would say, have you brushed your teeth or have you cleaned your room? So so it is kind of a a different thing, right? For for most venues in life, singing is completely optional, and most of the time, completely unexpected, right? Sometimes inappropriate. So why is our relationship with God different? Why should we sing to God? Well, it's because while God is certainly glorified when we say true things about Him, He's glorified in a different, unique kind of way when we sing true things about Him. He's glorified when we talk about the gospel, but he's glorified in a different way when we sing about the gospel. Singing does something unique. In fact, haven't you noticed that impulse in you to sing? You know, Haven't you felt that impulse to sing? So in the car, aren't there times where you sing or in the shower or where you look at other cars and you realize that other people are singing, maybe until they see you look at them and then they stop singing? There's something that's hardwired into us, where at least for most people, we feel compelled at times to sing. This past year, I I looked this up this this week. So Americans spent $15.9 billion on music in various forms, going to concerts, downloading music, $15.9 billion. Humans, we express ourselves oftentimes, not just in writing, not just in talking, but in singing. And we know why that is. It's because of the image of God in us. So our call to worship this morning, Zephaniah 3, verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So humans, every one of us is created in the image of a God who reveals himself to us as a singing God. So it's no surprise that we have that impulse in us. We're created in his image. And that's why throughout the Bible, God's people exercise that same instinct to respond to him through singing. So we see people all throughout scripture who when they're reminded about who God is or when they see God do something unique for them, they respond by singing. There's so many examples. Let me give you a couple of them. You'll remember a lot of these. Exodus 15, after Israel and Moses have been delivered from Pharaoh out of Egypt, what do they do? First thing they do, they sing. Exodus 15, called the Song of Moses. In Judges 5, when God gives Israel victory over the Canaanites, Deborah and Barak sing. That's their response. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, when the Lord delivers David from Saul, David sings luke 1 mary sees her sister elizabeth elizabeth tells mary some of the promises about the messiah what's mary do she sings there in luke 1. so the question is at at the at the front end here with this verse point is that you so do you sing to the lord and in particular when you gather together with your church family on the lord's day here on sundays do you actually sing the songs because It's not enough to simply stand up and just keep your mouths closed. It's it's not even enough to, to mouth the words. No, are your vocal cords moving and sound is coming out of your mouth? Verse six in our passage is not a suggestion. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. So God tells you to sing to him that, that glorifies him in a unique way. It's a command. So that's, the, that's the first thing we see here in this psalm. Now the psalmist moves on to explain for what reason God deserves our singing. And this is our second main point. And it's two parts. They're listed there in the, uh, in the bulletin. God deserves your singing because of who he is and because of what he's done for you. The psalmist focuses in on both of those. So first, God deserves your singing because of who he is. So, so why should people, according to verse 1, why should we shout to God with loud songs of joy? Well, he starts telling us in the very next verse, verse 2. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Okay, there's two titles there given right at the beginning of verse 2. Lord, you see how that's in all capital letters? You might know this, you might not remember this that means it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's the proper name that God revealed himself to his covenant people. He first tells it to Moses in Exodus three. Anytime you see in your English translation, Lord all caps, it's translating Yahweh, this unique name that God gave to his people. But that second title there, he's called the most high. And that's one maybe we're less familiar with it, but it's used a lot throughout scripture. It's used about 55 times. In the old testament new testament and god you know he reveals himself to us by lots of different names and they're getting at different aspects of his character so what's this one getting at god most high well i bet everybody here can figure it out god's the highest being he's in a class all by himself that's a lot of what we've been talking about in our cgg systematic theology class god's separate from us he's in a class all by himself he's the most high And the Bible often uses that kind of spatial imagery where God is above us to help us remember that truth. So let me read you a few verses. This is Isaiah 55 verse nine. You probably remember this. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, God's ways, higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So God's thoughts are different than ours. He's higher than us. Or Psalm 71, verse 19, your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heaven, who is like you. Same thing, he's using spatial imagery to let us know, oh, his righteousness is so much higher than ours. Or Psalm 113, verse 4, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. So his glory is higher than us. Listen to what Stephen says, that early deacon Stephen in Acts 17.48, the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. So that's getting at the fact that God is independent. He doesn't need anything from us. We don't build something because he needs it. He's high above us in that way. Heaven is my throne, he says. So he's most high. So God's entirely in a different class than we are. And see, here's what we need to understand. He's in that class, no matter whether he chose to act in this world or not. That's just in his character. Even if he decided not to save anybody, if he had never created, if he had never done anything in this world, he's still in a different class than we would be. What that means is even if he didn't work in this world, he's still deserving of our songs simply because of who he is in his character, before he does anything, just because of who he is. Look down at verse 9 in our psalm. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Now that word shields, you might have a certain translation that translates that kings. In fact, that Hebrew word there could be translated either way, shields, or kings, but in any event, what the psalmist is saying is that every nation's stuff, their kings, their shields, everything, it all belongs to the Lord. God is the king over all peoples, whether they're his friends or his enemies. He's the king over everyone who he has created. Like the end of verse 2 says, he's a great king over all the earth. Or look down at verses 7 and 8. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. So whether God decides to save someone or not, everyone in every nation belongs to him. Every created thing belongs to him. And therefore, he deserves everyone's worship. He's in a class by himself. In fact, God is so different from us that he elicits fear in us. This Psalm talks about, according to verse, uh, verse two, for the Lord, the most high is to be feared. So the idea there is God is so glorious. He's so absolutely good and true and beautiful and full of holiness that like Hebrews ten thirty one says, it's a fearful thing to fall into his hands. And and that's why just to remind ourselves, so a lot of folks in our culture, they would think about the idea as being face to face with God as a good comfortable thing. It's not a good comfortable thing to be in God's direct presence. It's a scary thing. We see that all throughout scripture. So that's why when created things in the Bible, angels or people, when they encounter God's actual presence, they usually fall down on their face. Or cover their face, like we see in Isaiah six. That's who God is in His nature. He's He's so entirely set apart from from us in holiness that, as God tells Moses in Exodus thirty three ten, man cannot see me and live. That's how glorious He is. If sinners like us just saw Him directly, we would die. That's how full God is. Verse two in our passage for the Lord, the most high is to be feared. Now, praise God. As those who believe in Jesus Christ, our fear of the Lord is not a terrified fear. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the fear you have of the Lord should be a terrified fear because outside of Jesus Christ, it means your sin hasn't been dealt with. And God right now, his attitude toward you is an attitude where he's ready to judge you because he's a good God and he can't overlook sin. He can't sweep it under the rug. He has to deal with it. So outside of Christ, the fear of God should be a terrified fear. And that's why our message to you, if you're here and you're not a believer, don't know what you think about Jesus, the message is come to Jesus. Run to Christ through placing your full hope and confidence and trust in him. He's the only way to get out from under your sin. There is no other path by which somebody can be saved. Jesus is the only way. But the good news is he died on the cross for exactly this purpose, to pay for our sins. And we don't access the work of Christ by trying hard, cleaning ourselves up, trying to be a good person. No, those things come in the Christian life. But no, the front door is to recognize you can't be good enough for God. And so you come to Christ simply trusting in him and his goodness, confessing about yourself that really there's only bad in us apart from the Lord. We have to have Jesus. He's the one who covers our sins and he's the only one who who can do it. If you're here and you'd be interested in thinking more about that, talk to me about that after the service. Send me an email, grab grab a member of this church or or one of the pastors here, grab one of the deacons to talk about the gospel, how you can trust in Christ and, and be saved, have your sins covered. But, but for those of us as believers, we're so thankful. We don't have that terrified fear, but we do still have a reverent fear, don't we? Simply because of who he is. And see, that kind of God, the real God, who is so infinitely glorious in holiness, who's, who's enthroned over his creation as king, he certainly deserves your singing, doesn't he? He deserves all of our singing. Now, he deserves your entire life, but one aspect of your life that he wants and that he deserves is your singing, your voice. Now, here's the second part of our second main point. God deserves our singing because of who he is, but then he sort of doubly deserves our singing because of what he's done for us. He's not only a God who in his character had all these things deserving of singing, but he stands back and doesn't interact with us. No, he's he's come into our world, He's, he's saved us, and he deserves our singing because of that as well, because of what he's done for us. Look at verses three and four. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Okay, so for us as God's people in Christ, God has done great things for us. Look again at what the psalmist points out in verse 3. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. God has defeated our enemies. So to to use the common imagery from Scripture, it's, it's it's like his foot is on the neck of your enemies. He stands over top of them. Your enemies have been defeated because of the work of the Lord. Now, this takes takes a little bit of work for us as New Covenant Christians because our situation, our context is different than the psalmist's context or different than the saints, the people of the Lord in the Old Testament. So our enemies are different in certain ways than their enemies in the Old Testament. So when the psalmist talks about God subduing peoples under us, He's thinking in particular about the opposing armies, the folks that attacked Israel, the folks that had the promised land and that it had to be wrestled from them by the Lord. He's thinking about those folks that he defeated on behalf of Israel. He's he's talking about the sort of thing we saw the Lord do in 1 Samuel 11. that pastor Mark preached a few Sundays ago where God defeated the Ammonites, those enemies. And God had to do a lot of that in the Old Testament. He has to defeat Egypt to get Israel out of captivity. He had to defeat the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all those other groups of people that end with it. He defeats all of those people and those are Israel's kind of main enemies, the folks that are at least the enemies that are right in front of them. But see, it doesn't work quite like that under the new covenant in Christ with the gospel. So like Jesus says in John eighteen thirty-six, he says, my kingdom is not of this world if my kingdom were of this world my servants would have been fighting like with swords that i might not be delivered over to the jews but my kingdom is not from this world okay so as christians we're not charged to set up a nation state of christianity and to go to war with with guns and other things against opposing nations no, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, he says. And that's, that's different than that dispensation in the Old Testament where God's people are fighting and the Lord is defeating those enemies with swords and, and that sort of thing. But that doesn't mean we don't have enemies. And this is important to understand because it will help you as a Christian read the Psalms because there's a lot in the Psalms about God defeating your enemies. And we need to understand who our enemies are If we're going to glorify the lord and recognize that he has defeated our enemies so let's think about the three main enemies that the christian has and those are satan and sin and death those are the three main enemies christ has defeated on our behalf so first jesus has defeated satan on your behalf now that's an enemy that that we share right with the folks in the old testament usually he wasn't front and center at least in their thinking they were thinking much more about these opposing enemy armies the same way that we oftentimes can forget about demonic influence and satan but we have to remember he's the one who first peter 5 8 calls your adversary and the one that passage says is looking to devour you so he is an enemy but praise the lord jesus has defeated satan you might remember this, but in Mark 3, we're told that the Son of God has bound the strong man. It's talking about Satan. Christ has bound him. Now, now, Satan can still harass you as a believer, but he's on a leash, as far as you're concerned, if you're trusting in Christ. As far as your spiritual life is concerned, Christ has bound him. He can't pull you away from Jesus. Second, Jesus has defeated your sinful flesh. So Satan and your sinful flesh. We talked about this in Galatians, but when you were a non-Christian, you and I worked for our sinful flesh. We were employed by the sinful flesh. So when your sin nature, outside of Christ, when your sin nature said jump, your life responded how high. We were bound to do what our sin nature wanted us to do. Here's how Paul says it, Romans 7, 23. He says, I see in my members, my body parts, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. But see Jesus broke that stranglehold through his work on the cross. Romans eight, two for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So through Christ's work on the cross, he freed you from the chains of your own sinful nature. Now you still live in that sinful nature until you die or until Christ returns. We're still sinners. So we will never see full victory in this life. Not because of Jesus's work being inadequate, but because of our sinful flesh continuing to fight. But... Your sinful flesh won't defeat you. It won't pull you away from Jesus. He's defeated your sinful flesh in that way. So that's the second enemy, Satan, your own sinful nature. Third, he's defeated death for you. That's what he did when he rose from the dead. And if you die before Christ returns, then one day when he returns, he'll raise your body back to eternal life. He, Paul actually calls death the last enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the Lord has defeated Satan for you and your sinful flesh and death. Verse 3 in our passage, He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. So he's defeated all of your enemies. And one day when he returns, he will fully destroy them. In the new heavens and the new earth, none of these enemies will be there. They will all be cast out. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. But something else we see in our passage is the reason for Jesus defeating our enemies. So why did he do it? He defeated them, but why did he do it? What was his impulse there? Well, we'll start with why he did not do it. He didn't do it because of anything in you. He didn't do it because of anything in you. In uh, in other words, God's saving you. It it wasn't a response to you. It wasn't like you were humble enough or good enough or kind enough. It wasn't like he looked at you and your neighbor and he said, you know what, this guy is is a good guy. So I'll save him. I'll choose him. No, it's it's not based on that. Look at what his saving you was based on. Verse 4. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Okay, so first of all, we're told God chose our heritage for us. If you're a believer, if you're trusting in Jesus, he chose your heritage, what you will end up getting for you. And that began with the promised land. Back in Canaan, right? That's what he means in verse 4 when he talks about the pride of Jacob. He's talking about this this homeland, this piece of real estate in the Old Testament that he gave to his people Israel. But see, here's the thing. That was just a shadow pointing forward to a much greater heritage, a much greater homeland. We've seen signs of that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. The Beatitudes, you might remember this. Jesus quotes Psalm 37, but instead of saying the meek will inherit the land, he universalizes it. The meek will inherit the earth. Or Romans chapter 4, verse 13, when Paul says Abraham and his offspring are heirs, not of Canaan, but of the world. So that the piece of property in the Middle East, that was always pointing forward to something much greater, to the ultimate heritage of God's people, which is the new heavens and new earth that Christ brings with him when he returns. So if you're a Christian, that's your heritage. And verse four reminds you that God chose that heritage for you. So the word predestined, think about destination. Your heritage has been chosen for you. Predestined, your predestination. Now, why is it that God chose heaven to be your ultimate heritage? He gives us this hint by bringing Jacob into the passage. He says, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. This is a call back to the second major patriarch in Israel. So there's Abraham, Isaac, third rather, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, Isaac's son. And you remember, Jacob had a twin brother, Esau, and the whole point of the birth narrative is that God chose Jacob and didn't choose Esau, which was unusual because Esau was born first. He was the older, but God chooses Jacob. He tells, uh, he tells their mother, the older shall serve the younger. Tells her that when the kids are in utero, before they've been born, it was already decided. The Lord explains this to us in Romans 9, 11. Why does, why does God choose Jacob and not choose Esau? Romans 9, 11, we're told, Paul says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. This is verse 16 of Romans 9. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. So see, God chose Jacob, not because of anything in Jacob, but because of something in God, which is God's mercy. God chose to love Jacob. And see, that's the only reason he chose you for salvation. If you're here and you're a Christian, it wasn't because of anything in you. It wasn't because you were more impressive than any other sinner. No, simply because of his grace and mercy. Isn't that incredible? That's the only reason he he saved you, is because he decided to be gracious and merciful in a way he didn't have to. But he went out of his way to to bring you to himself because he's merciful and gracious. And listen, he's not done saving people in that way. Look down at verse 9. There the psalmist says, The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Okay, he's, he's talking about two different groups of people. He's talking about Israel, the people of Abraham, and then he's talking about these, these princes from other nations. And what he's telling Israel is God is too gracious to only save people from Israel. He's too good for that. No, God's nature is to go all the way to the ends of the earth and save people from every tra- uh, tribe and nation and tongue. That's how gracious he is. It's what we saw in Galatians. You remember around Galatia, the false teachers were saying, hey, to become a Christian, you've gotta become a Jew first. But Paul says, no, no, you don't. The gospel's for the nations. This is what he says in Galatians 3, verse 29. If you are Christ's, so if you're a Christian, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So see, in the Old Testament, God's people were only made up of Israel or people who became part of Israel. Not so in the new covenant in Christ. That's where God's grace finally bursts forward, and he's saving people from every tribe and nation and tongue. In the words of Ephesians 2.14, Christ broke down the wall between Gentile and Jew to make one people of God. So this is a prophecy for Israel, telling them, God's not just gonna be gracious and merciful to you guys. He's going to go outside and save more people. God is so gracious and especially gracious to us because I, I don't think anybody in this room is an ethnic Jew. At least most of us aren't. God could have just stuck with Israel. He's too gracious. He's too gracious for that. He goes out and he saved people like us through faith in Christ. And so, to get back to our main point, because God's so gracious, and he decided to show you mercy so that he would go from not just being your creator, he'd become your father through Christ, and you know God now in an intimate way, the God over all the universe, he's become your father, you know him. Well, what else are you waiting on in order to fully sing on Sunday mornings? what else could he possibly do for us to be more deserving of our singing nothing right verse one clap your hands all peoples shout to god with loud songs of joy for the lord the most high is to be feared a great king over all the earth he subdued people under us and nations under our feet he chose our heritage for us the pride of jacob whom he loves god has gone up with a shout the lord with the sound of a trumpet Sing praises to God. Sing praises. So it's clear, sing to the Lord because of who He is and because of what He's done for you. But our passage, it's not just a call for us to sing to the Lord for the reasons that we just looked at. Our passage also tells us the way we're supposed to sing to the Lord. So in what way is the question? Our passage answers it. Three directives for the way we're supposed to sing to the Lord. They're listed there on the outline. First, sing loudly sing loudly verse one clap your hands all peoples shout to god with loud songs of joy okay so shouting that's obviously getting at volume that word loud in verse one the hebrew word for loud same idea as our english word for loud it's getting at volume So in Scripture, when it comes to singing, loud is better than quiet. Now, this this doesn't mean we're supposed to scream, right? The psalmist is still characterizing all of this as singing. You can get loud enough where all of a sudden you have crossed the threshold. You are no longer singing. You are now screaming. He's not talking about that. But we all know there's soft singing and loud singing, and God calls on us to sing to him loudly. That's one reason, by the way, that I love the way instrumentation is done at this church when we sing. The instrumentation is simple and mere. It's, 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 It's sort of on the down low. There's a reason for that, right? The reason is because the voices are supposed to be the main instruments. That's the way it's always been throughout church history. That's what scripture calls us to do in the new covenant in Christ in particular. We'll talk about that in a second. But if we have accompaniment, it's subdued. There's been Sundays we've sung with no accompaniment. But at most, there's a piano and a guitar. And it's pretty quiet. We do that on purpose. That's because the main instrument the Lord wants to hear is our voices. The main instrument he wants us to hear from one another in this space is our voices. Now, that's not exactly the way it was under the Old Covenant. So Old Covenant worship in the Old Testament... In the Psalms, you see, you've got loud horns, right? You've got drums. You've got clashing cymbals, Psalm 150. But see, most likely, that was all part of the dressing up of Old Covenant worship. It was in the same category as those ritual washings that the priest had to go through. But the, I mean, I took a shower this morning, but I don't have to go through those other ritual washings, right? We, we don't have to have curtains in here that are the perfect length. We don't have to have gold in here that weighs a certain amount to make certain parts of this gathering space. Now, Old Covenant worship was, was getting at the idea that God is so holy that when you come to God, it has to be perfectly mediated. Okay, but who's our mediator? It's not those certain requirements of the temple. No, it's it's Christ christ is the one who has paid for our sins and brings us to the lord and so new covenant worship does look different in that way that's probably why there's nothing said in the new testament about instrumentation during congregational singing in fact you might not know this you might, you might know this for about the first thousand years of church history no instruments in, uh, in gathered worship and then the stream we come out of here sort of the Reformed tradition the reformers no instruments and then the puritans the, the brand of English puritanism that came over and started our country, no instruments. They're gathering together and, and they're, simply, they're simply singing. I don't think it's sinful the, the way we do it. I think we're, we're perfectly fine to have a piano, to, to have a guitar, but, but we understand those instruments are only there to aid the voices. They're almost like training wheels that just keep our singing upright. It's helpful, right? Instruments help with the tempo, help with the key. So we, we stay on key. But they're like training wheels. They're just there to aid the voices. Way John Calvin says it, that there's a beautiful simplicity to New Testament worship. That's undoubtedly true. So that's, that's something that the elders do to, to try to focus on the singing to be loud. But singing loud, it, it requires a few things from us individually as well, as folks who gather here. So, so first, these are just a couple practical things. First, it means you've got to know the songs we're singing, right? You can't sing loud. At least you can sing loud, but it'll be in a distracting way if if you don't know the tune of the song we're singing. So you've got to know the songs that we're singing. That's exactly why we send out that email toward the end of the week that has those YouTube videos. So if there is a song you're not familiar with, you can listen to it. That's a good practice. So when we get in here, we know the tune enough to where we can sing loudly. We're familiar with it. Second practical thing, You've got to hold your head up when you sing. It's just a practical thing. So, you know, here we've got the words projected on the screen. We've also got them in the worship guide. Now, whatever it is in me, I look at the worship guide all the time. If the screen was turned off, I wouldn't even notice. But here's the thing. If you're like me and you look at that worship guide, you can't do this number. No, if you've ever sung in a choir, you know this. You've got to project. You stand up straight. You've got to hold the worship guide in front of you so that you're straight and your head is tilted up and you can sing that way. So we wanna sing loudly. But the truth is, those are practical, helpful things, but, but most of what it takes to sing loud is just to decide to sing loud. Verse one, clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. So sing loudly. Second, sing joyfully. The psalmist says, shout to God with loud songs of joy. Psalm 511, let all who take refuge in you ever sing for joy. Psalm 63, five, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Psalm 92, four, at the works of your hands, I sing for joy. So we should sing joyfully. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. God is not after our external behavior. That's what every other man-made religion does. No, just do the right things, walk through the motions, that'll make God happy. Nope, not the one true God. He's after your heart. Now, external stuff follows with that, right? But he's always after your heart. He's never satisfied with just external things if he doesn't have your heart. So you can sing as loud as you want. If we're not singing joyfully from our heart, the Lord's not interested in it. He wants you to sing loudly because of your heart overflowing with thankfulness for who he is, what he's done for you in Christ, the things we just looked at. So sing joyfully. And the way we do that is, is to take the words of the songs and, and really believe them, you know, really believe the ideas that we're rehearsing to ourselves, to really believe the readings that have are interspersed throughout the, the service around the songs. In fact, it could be helpful to look at the worship guide the week before. Look at those words, meditate on them, pray that they would be true to you. It's when we believe the things we're singing about that we will sing joyfully. And finally, Sing according to Scripture. Look down at verse 7. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. So what God's doing is he's telling us, sing according to my word. Look at my word and then what you learn about me, what you're taught there, sing those things back to me. And this is important because one thing we find out from the very first book of the Bible is that mankind doesn't know how to worship God on our own. He has to tell us how to properly worship him. So he had to tell Adam and Eve how to operate in the garden. They didn't know that intuitively. He had to tell them. You might remember Cain, he brought an offering to the Lord. He thought his offering was good enough. It wasn't good enough. The Lord had to tell us, this isn't what I'm looking for. God had to give the nation of Israel all those instructions, right? About how to set up the tabernacle, how to make the right kind of animal sacrifices. In fact, in Leviticus 10, God judges two men on the spot, takes their lives because they offered worship that he had not called for. They offered what Moses calls unauthorized fire. So when man tries to worship God from our own understanding, it never goes well. Now, we need God to reveal to us how he should be worshiped. And that's exactly what he's done for us in the scriptures. So sing according to scripture. Now, as elders, we try to ensure that's the case by only including songs that are biblical. We don't want to sing a line that's less than biblical in those songs. We don't want to contradict the teaching of scripture. But we also want to sing in the way that scripture tells us to sing. And that means that we're not going to frame it like a performance. In, in New Testament worship, it's the entire congregation that's singing to the Lord and to one another. They're not spotlighting one person or a small group of people. No, everybody's singing to one another. Like we read earlier, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, the songs in worship, they, they serve us as, as we sing them to one another, which means it's reciprocal. It's every person singing to everybody else. So after that first Lord's Supper, it wasn't that Jesus stood up and gave a solo. No, they all sang a hymn. When they were locked in jail, Paul wasn't just singing to Silas. Silas wasn't just singing to to Paul. No, they're singing to one another and to the Lord. So the idea is that, that every member of the church is involved in this ministry of singing to one another. So see, in a way, Cornerstone Baptist has a choir It's just we are all members of the choir and we are spread out as we sing to the Lord and sing to one another. So so that's what we do as elders to help keep our singing according to scripture. But where you come in as a member is to point out to us as elders if you ever feel like we're missing the mark. In particular, an easy thing to do is for us to sing a song where you might see a line that kind of is a red flag where you think, wait a second, that line, how does that square with this teaching in Scripture? And that's something that as elders, we count on the whole body of Christ to keep an eye on it and to point out. Like we say in our church's covenant, we, all of us, will work together to sustain this church's worship. So we want to take that responsibility seriously. Well, here's the last thing we'll look at. Look at verse 5 of our psalm. It says god has gone up with a shout the lord with the sound of a trumpet okay most commentators think this is an allusion to an event that happens in second samuel second samuel chapter 6 verse 15 when the ark of the covenant so you remember that was the box that held the ten commandments that's the box where the lord his spirit would descend and his presence would be on the top of that ark of the covenant most people think this is an illusion to the ark being brought back into Jerusalem by David. It had been gone. David brings it back in 2 Samuel 6. So the psalmist is telling the congregation, sing like you sang when the ark of the covenant came back into Israel. Verse five, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with a sound of a trumpet. So the psalmist seems to be saying, you guys remember how good that felt? have God's presence after you hadn't had it for a while, how thrilling it was, how excited you were by that. Well, we're called to do that every Sunday morning. We're we're being called to remember how good it is to have the presence of the God of the universe, the God who has saved us. We're being reminded how good it is to have him in our presence And we're responding to that reality with with the joy of singing to him and to one another, clap your hands, all peoples shout to God with loud songs of joy for the Lord, the most high is to be feared a great King over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us. The pride of Jacob, whom he loves, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord, with the sound of a trumpet, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of all the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, most of all, that you have given yourself to us. Every word in this psalm about you is absolutely true. You, you deserve anything we could possibly give you simply because of your character, who you are. You're fully set apart from us, Father, and we are so thankful you give yourself to us to worship. Father, we're also thankful that you have saved us. So again, we kind of owe you this double portion. Not only are you a God worthy of our singing, but, but then you have saved us in Christ. Father, we are people who have every reason in the world to give you everything we have including our voices. So Father, we pray that you would grow us in obedience. We pray we would sing to you, Father, loudly and joyfully and according to your word, that you might be pleased with that and glorified and we would be built up in the faith. Take a moment now to pray individually and silently that the Spirit would do these things in your heart. So take a few moments and pray that prayer individually now.